you new with us, we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and so I'm going to pray as we jump into uh, today's passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Lord Jesus, the one who said, Lazarus, come forth from the dead, we pray you would use your word today to bring the dead to life. The one who healed those who suffered from various diseases, I pray you'd use your word today to heal your people. Come and do the work that you do by your spirit today in Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Well, this passage is all about forgiveness. C.S. Lewis once said that we, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. It is indeed a beautiful idea. It's difficult to put it into practice. You have a number of movies and shows that have this as a dominant theme. Uh, to quote uh, Hamilton, if you've never heard of it, uh, there's one song called The Unimaginable, where Eliza is forced with the unimaginable decision to forgive her husband of his failures. Or if you're familiar with Les Mis, you know the ex-con Jean Valjean is running from his nemesis who just won't let up. Uh, Inspector Javert, and uh, he has a, uh, a line in one of his songs where he says about Jean Valjean, you must think me mad, I've hunted you across the years, a man like you can never change a man such as you, and the unforgiveness in his own heart ends up ruining him. We love the idea of forgiveness, but putting it into practice is another matter. Two of the hardest ministries in the church have to do with the ministry of discipline and the ministry of forgiveness. Both are mentioned in the passage we're looking at today with the emphasis being on the latter, that of forgiveness. And a healthy church has to do both. We have to practice discipline and we have to practice forgiveness to those who are repentant. God blesses the church that takes sin seriously enough to rebuke and discipline, but it's also gracious enough to forgive and be reconciled to an offender who has repented. Now, since the reformers, uh, Protestants have held three marks of a true church. One, the right preaching of the word. Two, the right administering of the sacraments. And three, the practice of church discipline, and with two and three being linked together. And we know that this is for the good of the church, the purity of the church, the witness of the church, and for the restoration of those who are being disciplined. We know in the seven churches uh, to the Revela in Revelation, uh, Jesus commends churches for uh, not tolerating false teaching and gross immorality. And so that's another sermon. This, this passage is mainly about the forgiveness of one who has been rebuked, corrected, and has repented. And Paul calls on the church to welcome this person with the love of Christ. And a church or a Christian that doesn't forgive, doesn't understand or rightly appreciate God's forgiveness of us. As Jesus put it in the Lord's Prayer, which is, should be a daily prayer for us. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And goes on to say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. I love in Nehemiah chapter 9 how they're praying and they say about God, but you are a God ready to forgive. He stands 
ready to forgive. He's, he's more ready to forgive than we're ready to repent. Or Psalm 103, he forgives all our iniquity, cast it as far as the east is from the west. And Colossians 3 puts it very wonderfully and concisely. If one has a complaint against another, cancel them, right? No, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Now, let me catch you back up on this situation that's going on in this passage. Paul was in Ephesus when he had received a negative report about a particular individual who uh, was leading a, a faction in Corinth. And instead of doing his double visit that he wanted to do to Corinth, he had to make an emergency visit, and he says it was painful. The meeting didn't go well. Uh, the, there was a big blow up, and Paul left. And he hadn't visited again since this, this incident. And instead, what he did was write a letter. He was about to come to them soon as he's writing 2 Corinthians. Uh, and here he has said that he's, he's thankful that that painful letter ha served its purpose. And what he had done is basically called on the church to take action on this particular offender. We're not told exactly what he did, but it was uh, enough to warrant some kind of church action and it was uh, deeply troublesome and painful to Paul. Now, the majority of the church has responded well, and you can catch that spirit of thankfulness throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians, but there was still some work to do. And now, after church action has taken place, a wonderful thing happened. It actually worked. The offender has apparently repented, and Paul urges the church to now welcome him and forgive him. And so you see this beautiful balance here of the purity of the church and the forgiveness of the church uh, and failure to do these ministries, either of them, discipline or forgiveness, allows Satan to have the upper hand. This is where this passage ends, that unforgiveness is in alignment with Satan's purpose and his work. Now, there are five truths I want to give you about forgiveness briefly, emphasis on briefly. Okay, hopefully a short passage, short sermon, right? Makes sense. Uh, but before we get there, just notice the, the context, the offense and the punishment in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So whatever happened with this individual and the church had caused pain. This was real pain. Paul experiences uh, both with the Corinthians, joy and pain. Some of you middle-agers may remember the theologians Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock who used to sing joy and pain, or like the sunshine and the rain. Uh, Paul had a lot of that uh, with his relationship with the Corinthians. And he says that the pain that was caused to me, uh, I don't want to overstate it, he says, is also caused you pain. And again, we don't know what this actual offense is or who this man is. It seems to be a man. After In verse 8, he, he uses the, the pronoun him. Uh, and some have... Uh, suggested that this is the individual in 1 Corinthians 5, and there's a scene there where a man had taken, uh, he, he was in an incestuous relationship, and Paul tells the church to expel the immoral brother. And so some have speculated, well, now this guy has turned and repented, and now he wants to be welcomed back. But there are no clues in the text that it was that particular individual. What we can say with confidence is that he wronged Paul. He had undermined his uh, authority. He perhaps was engaged in uh, some of the things you read about later in the letter, like in 2 Corinthians 12, 20 to 3, uh, 13, 2, 
where Paul uh, talks about uh, sexual immorality and idolatry that was so prevalent in Corinth, it could have been that this guy uh, was, was some kind, uh, kind of encouraging this type of behavior. It had to be serious for him to make an emergency visit to Corinth. And so whatever it was, this was no minor thing. This was a major problem. And this guy was undermining Paul's authority. He was uh, slandering him and leading a faction. And Paul says that he has caused pain. Now notice when he says this in verse 5, we see a principle that's very important. And that is our sin affects others. Uh, it's not a very popular idea today. As you hear people saying things all the time, like, I'm not hurting anyone. That's just my decision. But sin always has effects on the community. It always has effects on societies, and in this case, the church. This offender's actions had impacted the church negatively. But now Paul says in verse 6 that the punishment was sufficient, and he tells them to cease. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The church had responded in some form of uh, correction, some form of discipline. We don't know exactly what they did. It, it ranges any, anywhere from excommunication to a mild rebuke, somewhere uh, on that spectrum. But something did take place, and Paul says, it is enough now. Now, he doesn't mention this guy's repentance explicitly in the passage, but based on other texts on this issue, I don't think we would uh, say that Paul would have urged for forgiveness and reconciliation without it. And by calling the church to, for, to forgive this individual, again, he is reflecting the Lord Jesus and his teaching. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Now, this is an illustration of that principle that Jesus laid out for us. And so now, there is the call to forgive, verses 7 to 11. Paul says, this is what you should do with his individual. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Excessive sorrow. That's what the chiefs are going to feel like today, by the way. It's 23, 20 bucks, okay? Uh, I'm cheering for the old man, Tom Brady. Notice he says here, that you are to forgive. The word forgive in Greek is not the usual word that's used. Um, this word uh, from charizomai has this word charis, grace, in it. And he literally is saying, be gracious to them. It can mean to give a gift, to, to grant forgiveness. The, the usual word for forgiveness, ephemi, has this idea of releasing something. And that's what you do when you forgive. You release any feeling of anger or resentment that you've harbored against a person. But in this case, the emphasis is on giving. It's on grace. At the heart of our English word forgiveness, interestingly, is that word give. And this is why forgiveness is hard, because you want to say in your heart, this person doesn't deserve it. And that's why we call it grace. The idea of giving and giving grace is later developed in the letter beginning in chapter 8. So they're called to embrace this individual like the father whose prodigal son had spent everything in riotous living and comes back home and the father welcomes him and embraces him. He's calling the Corinthians to do at a micro level what God has done for us at a macro level. As the psalmist says, if you, O God, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. 
that you may be feared. And this is why we keep no record of wrong, because we're reflecting the forgiveness that we ourselves have experienced. We are merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. This church is called to hug this sinner back into the very heart of God. And so, number one, five marks on forgiveness. Forgiveness brings comfort. Paul's concerned that this guy may be overwhelmed by sorrow. And so he urges them to comfort him. This word sorrow can mean to be swallowed up. He doesn't want this individual swallowed up, but rather he wants him to experience the healing of God's grace. Comfort. Being in a relationship where there is a lack of forgiveness, where things are not right, is very uncomfortable. It's unsettling. And one of the things that forgiveness brings is a deep level of comfort. Again, we're reflecting the very character of God as this letter opened with that God is the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort. So display comfort in forgiveness. Secondly, he says in verse 8 that forgiveness expresses love. He says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So he says, not just forgive the man, love the man. This again is in the same spirit of verse 7. Don't just mouth something, but show it. Don't let him be swallowed up in despair, but confirm your love for him, which is a word that means to ratify a decision legally. This could have been a public action now to reaffirm their love for him. So don't merely exonerate the person in a detached way, just quietly allowing him back at arm's length, but reaffirm your love, fold him into the fellowship with the kind of love that God has embraced us with. Now, this theme of love, we're going to see throughout the, the whole letter. We looked at some of it last week in verse 4. And here the church is being called to display this New Testament ethic. The greatest of these is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Let love be genuine. Love is the way of excellence. The new commandment that Jesus gives us, that we love one another. Forgiveness expresses comfort. It expresses love. Thirdly, it's a matter of, of obedience. Verse 9 he says, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Paul returns to this painful letter, which we no longer have, and tells of the very purpose for which he wrote it, and that was their obedience. The painful letter was basically this message, discipline the guy. Second Corinthians, the message is forgive the guy. He has responded appropriately and now he wants the church to respond appropriately. And he says, I want to test you. I want, to, I want you to be a proven disciple, that you heed the word, as James puts it, that you're a doer of the word. So be about genuine obedience. That's the principle for us. Not just the parts we like, disregarding the parts we don't like. This obedience in this case was all about their full-hearted love for this man and reunited fellowship with him. Forgiveness is a matter of obedience. Number four, forgiveness pleases Christ. Notice he says in verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, you can, you can see how wrapped up the Corinthians and Paul are throughout the letter. And here's another example of that. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, when Paul says, if I've forgiven anything, he's kind of downplaying his act of forgiveness. He has forgiven the guy who offended him, who undermined him, who had uh, uh, formed a faction uh, in Corinth. 
But in light of Christ, it's, it's not a hard act of forgiveness, right? If I have forgiven anything, he says, because he had forgiven a lot. But in light of all that he had experienced in Christ Jesus, he can view it as a, a, a small act of forgiveness. And he says, I have done it for your sake. I've done it for the good of the church. And so Paul here is leading by example. He's leading for the unity of the church. And then he has this statement here that I've done it in the presence of Christ. Now the word in Greek here is, is in the face of Christ. That it, he's, he's done it in view of Christ. Paul, or God looking on, Christ looking on with approval of this act of forgiveness. He's pleased with the act of forgiveness. We don't need any greater motive than that, do we? That we forgive and we love in the presence of Jesus Christ as those who have experienced the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ to the glory of Jesus who smiles on his people as they display this kind of forgiveness. All of our forgiveness is fueled by an awareness of the forgiveness that we have received by God in Christ. And so another example here of Christ who is present in church discipline, Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, he is there. Here, Christ is present in the act of forgiveness as well. He's there. He's with us. And how can we not when we think about what he's forgiven us? There's a great parable in Matthew 18 where Jesus essentially says one guy got forgiven a $6 billion debt and then turned around and wouldn't forgive a guy who owed him $12,000. And we have forgiven an incalculable debt that we could never pay back. And therefore, in light of that, forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Now, this doesn't mean there are no consequences, right? David was forgiven, but there were consequences on his reign, on his family. You may go to jail. The thief on the cross was forgiven and he still died. But that said, we forgive by the power of Jesus before the eyes of Jesus, as those those who have been forgiven by Jesus. Number five, this is a very, this this is the point that really has just struck me fresh this week. Forgiveness thwarts Satan's plans. It thwarts Satan's plan. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. When you think about Satan's work in the world, what comes to your mind? Well, we may think of, of macro things in the, in the wider world and uh, the evil of certain events and movements, and that is certainly true. But it's, it's really interesting how in the New Testament relationships are broken relationships, divisive relationships unforgiveness in relation to the lack of reconciliation is attributed to the work of Satan. He wants to destroy the church. So what does he do? The church is made up of people. And so he is involved when there is a lack of forgiveness. You see that in uh, the book of James chapter three, where he's talking about uh, peacemaking and conflict. And he says, where there is disorder, you find Satan there. You know, in Ephesians chapter uh, four, He talks about not letting uh, the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold, he says. One scholar puts it like this. It is Satan's desire to divide and destroy the Christian church, the family of God, and the family unit of human beings. He would love to sidetrack, discourage, or effectively negate all Christian ministry. 
Satan can successfully steal our encouragement, our confidence, and our joy. His tools include doubt, injury, unforgiveness, and disappointment. And so Paul says, no, we're going to thwart his plans by practicing forgiveness. We're going to forgive repentant people as those who have been forgiven ourselves. To put a sharp point on it, withholding forgiveness is satanic. Again, another great quote, this time from David Garland. Satan's realm is one where immorality, thirst for revenge, ruthlessness, heartlessness, and deadly rancor hold sway. Those who are in Christ have received God's free pardon, and they are transferred into a realm where faith, hope, love, and tender mercies rule. Satan is powerless before a united community filled with love and humble forgiveness. He's powerless where that's there. Satan's goal is always to foil God's work of reconciliation. Paul can, Paul's concluding greetings in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, may seem ironic, a God of peace crushing an enemy. But Satan is the enemy of peace. He is defeated by reconciliation. Christian love and charity neutralize all of Satan's powers over us and serves as an invisible protective shield. I love that. We thwart the evil one's plans as we practice love and reconciliation and forgiveness. He is defeated by reconciliation. And in today's cancel culture, this is a word for the church. This is a word for Christians. We're not canceling, we're forgiving. Why? Because we weren't canceled, we were forgiven. Praise God. God didn't just throw us to the side when we sinned, but he has welcomed us and loved us. And so we too put our arms around repentant sinners as those who have been embraced ourselves and we thwart the evil one's plans. Forgiven people forgive people as an expression of comfort, as an expression of love, as a matter of obedience, as an act done before the approving Christ and as a means of swarting Satan's plans. One final quote this time from Dane Orland who says, when we turn and embrace in forgiveness a fallen penitent brother, we are giving him a touch of heaven. This is who God is. And as we do so, we do not give a fresh pep talk. We do not scold or wag a finger even subtly. To the penitent, such a response is counterproductive. We simply embrace. For we ourselves have fallen in a thousand different ways in our short life, and we have needed the embrace of God in Christ toward us. As Paul said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. Because, brothers and sisters, we have experienced the unimaginable in Jesus Christ. Full atonement, complete forgiveness through his saving work. We who have received mercy and grace, let us now show mercy and grace to one another. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is what we hold out to you. Not a list of rules. Not, you know, a message of straighten up and fly right. Get a little religion in your life. We say that God is holy and we are sinful and there is no way to have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ, but he will have you if you will turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You can have the standing that we have with him today, the hope that we have with him today. And that's what we invite you to, and we would love to talk to you about that. 
right after this service. Let's pray together, friends, before we take the table. Father, we thank you for your mercies. We're grateful for the good news of the gospel. If you kept a record of sins, nobody here could stand. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Make us, as forgiven people, forgiving people. As people who haven't experienced mercy, make us merciful people. Make us that kind of church, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.